Science these days practically requires collaboration. Few of us have the skills to perform all the techniques, use the best stats, and write the most compelling papers by ourselves. These collaborations are yielding exciting results, but by nature, they're also risky. In the last few weeks, this risk was realized when problems were discovered in data sets from Jonathan Pruitt, an animal behavior professor at McMaster University. The problems were severe and common enough in the data sets that several papers have since been retracted and others are under investigation. On this short episode, we talk with Dan Bolnick, editor of the journal American Naturalist, who is heavily involved in the first retraction decision, as well as ongoing investigations of other work involving Jonathan. Dan's efforts have helped uncover a broader set of data problems in these papers, which are now reverberating through biology. The problems with the data were serious enough to warrant a retraction. But after our interview, Dan asked us to emphasize journals that have retracted papers so far aren't rendering judgment about whether Jonathan engaged in any kind of misconduct. The retractions are simply acknowledging that the quality of the data is bad. Dan's level-headedness has also been a great example of how to navigate such a delicate situation, one that affects the careers of many people, especially early career scientists. I'm Matt Blois. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. This is Big Biology. So as you know, we want to talk to you about this sort of recent news about papers that have been co-authored by Jonathan Pruitt, uh, several of which have been retracted. Uh, and the very first one that was retracted was from American Naturalist. And, and you've played a, a kind of central role in, in um, this sort of ongoing ongoing saga. So so maybe just, just give us a broad overview of what, what, what happened and, and what, what led to the retraction and how did you get involved in, in this? So... Jonathan Pruitt, the person in question, is a really prolific and very creative author in behavioral ecology. Um, and he's published six papers in the American Naturalist over the years. And I was contacted by um, a European scientist who himself had been contacted by a whistleblower who, whose identity is, is unknown to me. Um, suggesting that there was something anomalous in the data. And so um, this European scientist did some digging and he and some collaborators found some patterns in the data that they found odd. Namely, there were... So the data in question was timing how long it took spiders to respond to something. And they were given up to um, 600 seconds... 10 minutes to respond. And so in principle, any number between zero and 600 is allowed. And there were way too many duplicate numbers. You know, why should a whole bunch of spiders all respond at exactly 223 seconds? Mm -hmm. um, and so that excess of duplicated numbers was a red flag. Um, but really, so, so uh, these researchers contacted me saying, we have some concerns about this um, could you seek an explanation? So I emailed Jonathan Pruitt directly and said, can you explain this? And his initial explanation was that they had one stopwatch for a whole web with a bunch of spiders on the web. And um, when one spider responded, they all did together. And so you'd click the stopwatch and all of the spiders on that web would get the same time. I see. So they're sort of paying attention to each other rather than being independent data points yeah. in some way. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's that sounds reasonable. Okay. 
Uh, but you didn't say that in the methods and you didn't analyze it appropriately. You know, when we do statistics, we assume that each observation is independent of every other observation. And what Jonathan mm-hmm. was telling me is that that wasn't the case. And so he offered after my prodding to reanalyze the data, um, dropping out those duplicated values um, and issue a correction. Um, Meanwhile, the original people who raised the question with me got back to me and said, well, that doesn't hold water because those duplicated values should all be inside a given web at a single point in time. And they're not. They're happening on different days and different webs and different places. Um, Those duplicated numbers are not for Mm. the reason he offered. Um, Mm. At which point, no further explanation was forthcoming from Jonathan and his co-authors after really a month and a half or so of back and forth with him said, you know, we're just not satisfied that we understand how these data were generated. And since we don't trust that the data are accurate, uh, maybe it was a copy and paste error. Maybe, you know, who knows what could have happened in handling the data files. Um, We don't stand by these data. And so we wanted to retract it and they issued Following standard guidelines, they issued a retraction statement to the journal. The journal reviewed it. The journal ran it past their lawyers. Um, Then we sent it off to the copy editor and typesetter and published it online on January 17th, which is almost exactly two months after I was first notified. So it was quite a long process of evaluation and consideration. It wasn't Mm -hmm. something that was a rush Mm -hmm. to judgment. Meanwhile, it was clear that there were at least two other papers that were affected at other journals. Um, one from Proceedings B, which is officially retracted now, and one from Biology Letters, which I believe is also officially retracted but now. Is that is that because they involve the same co-authors who are doing the same kind of digging into the data, or did exactly did people sort of get wind of of this, uh, you know, and other co-authors started looking into? Uh, this was this was the same co-authors, uh-huh. um, and they again pushed for the retraction. But once it became clear that it was not one paper, the question then obviously is how deep does this go? And so I asked one of the associate editors for the journal to do some extra digging and just look at the raw data for all five other American naturalist papers. Papers outside of the American naturalist I'm obviously concerned about, but that's not my job. And so uh, Jeremy Fox and some other associate editors have done a phenomenal job of doing really some detailed dives into the raw data of some other papers and found, in some cases, data sets that look mostly okay, and in some cases, data sets that have the same kinds of duplications. And it's not just that particular numbers are duplicated. After a couple weeks of turning these data files around and looking at them more carefully, um, one of the co-authors, Kate Laskowski, figured out that there were whole blocks of consecutive numbers that were literally copy and pasted. So it's not just like the number 223 shows up in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. It's that you have a whole string of numbers that are exactly copied, um, you know, 10 numbers in a row. And Dan, we're not talking about this gigantic, same gigantic data set that has errors. We're talking about it's a diff- different, it's a different data, data sets. Set not case. just different studies, but totally different data it's sets. A different, okay. Yeah, it's a different data set in each yeah. case. Um, so I think there's a, uh, a running tally of how many papers um, are either 
retracted or in the process of investigation or I mean, what, what, what are the numbers that we're looking at right now? Well, I have the uh, master spreadsheet in front of me. Um, so I'm aware of right now um, 11 papers that uh, are either, there are only two that are, where the retraction is officially public. Um, there's another uh, nine where retraction has been requested by the authors and is being processed. Okay. And as you started the conversation, um, Jonathan is a prolific scientist. So out of a total of 150 or 160 different contributions. That's right. And some of those contributions are um, review papers. Some of them are theory mm -hmm. papers. Um, and there's a decent number of papers that he's on where other people generated the data. And the kinds of patterns that have been caused for concern in the retractions don't show up in the data sets that other people collected that he's a co-author on, his students, for example. So, so in terms of just sort of overall effort to get to the bottom of this, it sounds like it's it's you've spent a lot of your time in the last couple of months on, on this, and a lot of other people have spent a lot of time, including his his you know former collaborators. So, so you know what what's the scope of this, and and where where does it come to an end? Uh, I think we're going to see the aftershocks of this for quite a long time. Um, I suspect in the long run we're going to be looking at a couple dozen retractions total. Wow. And that has ripple effects. I know of meta-analyses. So a meta-analysis for listeners is a, a scientific study that uses other people's published data and collects that data across many different studies to reach some broader overarching conclusion. Oh, yeah. There are meta-analyses that use a lot of his results. Incorporate those data. Oh, no. And so I know of at least two meta-analyses where people are revisiting their work, either one published and one not published, um, and having to reanalyze their results. Mm -hmm. um, there are review papers where the perspective of the review, the idea that's being promulgated, is really building off of his work. Um, so there's a whole scaffolding that's on very shaky ground. But there is also a lot of work by other people and by his students and his collaborators that's still solid. And so the biggest project right now is sorting the wheat from the chaff. What do we keep and what do we continue to trust and what do we set aside? And mm -hmm. that's really an all-consuming task for a whole lot of people right now, both within behavioral ecology, his co-authors, I'm sure, are finding a huge time drain that they weren't counting on sorting through this material. But there's also a lot of people stepping up to the plate to help out. There are people who aren't in e even in behavioral ecology. There are people who aren't, in even in, aren't even in organismal biology who are stepping in to say, oh, I can check out some data sets and take sort a look. Interested in data forensics mm -hmm. and data integrity. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's a lot of volunteers coming in to help out who, some of whom uh, prefer to stay behind the scenes and have done really a heroic job of some in-depth, very careful dives into the data, checking to make sure that these runs of duplicated numbers aren't uh, something you would expect by chance, for example. Um, 
So it's it's been amazing to see the community rally to try and help out in yeah, the process. Yeah, but that's taking time away from those people's own sure, research. So absolutely, right. You know, the field of behavioral right. ecology is going to be partly on pause for a month or two while there's a lot of this reanalysis and reassessment and people burning a lot of time that would be better spent on other things. Yeah, yeah. So Dan, what is it? What is it? What does it mean on the the more personal level? Like Art just sort of had the epiphany about the the meta analysis dimension. I mean, there are other parts to this that may not be so obvious for people that are, are not doing the science and sort of appreciating the implications of being a collaborator and how that sort of percolates, the actions of one percolate through all of the other people that are involved. What's going on on that front? Well, there are students or former students of Jonathan Pruitt's that, who um, see the majority of their CV, the majority of their career that they're using to try and get a job or get grants. They're seeing that go up in smoke potentially. Um, so somebody who has multiple papers with this guy being retracted, in some cases that's a sizable fraction of their research output for their career. Yeah, that just seems so devastating. And that's mm -hmm. going to really impact their own self-confidence as they go on the job market. I think a lot of places are going to be very understanding of that. And a lot of institutions and departments and colleagues are going to be very supportive and but it's still a really psychologically major blow and then there's the discussions that are happening in every corridor in biology departments around the country right now about what does this mean for the role of trust in science, right? So fundamentally, when either of you publish a paper, I believe that you did what you said you did, and the data is real. And now there's a lot of concern about what are the standards that we need to pursue of watching over each other's shoulders. And there's some of that that's already gone on, which is you're supposed to publish your data. And it turns out for quite a few of his papers, he still hasn't published his data, even for journals that require it. Oh, huh. And just for the listeners, so uh, what what this means is that when you when you publish a study based on a data set, you have to deposit it into a publicly available database so that anyone can see the data, right? Right. And 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 that that's, that's a relatively new thing in publishing, right? That's only come on in the last what I don't know, ten or fifteen years. Yeah. So say. the American Naturalist uh, former editor Mike Whitlock really drove a lot of this, and the American Naturalist was the first journal to require data deposition on a public archive. Uh, and that was just about 10 years ago, just over 10 years. You know, the presumption is those data that I see on these public archives are accurate. Um, but you know, where does the responsibility end for checking on each other? At what point does this become every scientist wears a body camera recording every action that they do, right? That's obviously going overboard <laughs> but we really there's a lot of just soul searching right now about yeah, what are the yeah. proper limits of oversight of each other and what's the proper role of trust versus mistrust i read uh, joan strassman's essay about yeah. trust in in biology and um you know her her, her basic conclusion I, I think i agree with which is we, we have to trust each other there's just um you know that's that's the way collaborations in science work um but then, you know, something like this happens and it really shakes your, your confidence in that, in that feeling. Um, and, and so I guess, I guess the flip side of that is, do, do you feel like the co-authors should have noticed these issues? And are, are there things that we can do going forward to make it easier for 
for collaborators and co-authors to to sort of check check the integrity. So I've said very publicly a number of times that I really don't hold the co-authors responsible. And I say that because having looked at a couple dozen of these data sets at this point, um, it is not immediately obvious that there are big blocks of duplicated text. To find that requires opening up the data file and searching visually for that duplication. There are certainly things that we normally do as scientists when we get a data set to see if it looks like it's good data. We'll do a histogram and ask how common are different values, and we'll do scatter plots and ask are there outliers, are there extreme numbers that don't make any sense. Um, and the co-authors actually did due diligence. So Kate Laskowski, for example, on her blog, she was one of the affected co-authors. She was the first person to really be impacted by this. Um, yeah, she has a super impressive uh, blog post about you know, her she efforts. She does. So. It's fantastic. So she updated this blog mm -hmm. post with an addendum saying, here's all of the things that I did. Here's literally the R code that I used when I first got these files to check to make sure that the data look okay. And it checked out. Because the patterns that are the source mm -hmm. of concern are not the kinds of things we normally look for. Um, to follow up on that, I then found myself in the awkward position of emailing other people, other co-authors of Pruitt's, saying, hey, this thing's happened. Here's the pattern that we're seeing. Would you mind taking a look at your own data sets from your own papers with Pruitt and seeing if they're the same patterns? And in a number of cases, people wrote back and wow. said, oh, I took a look and I don't see anything like this. So I think we're all right. And then somebody else would write, mm -hmm. another co-author would write mm -hmm. back and say, yeah, I don't spot anything either. So they, they were notified that this was a problem. They looked, they didn't spot it. It's still not obvious. Yeah. And then somebody generates a computer code that automates the process of scanning for this. And boom, there it is. Wow. You know, multiple sets of large blocks of duplicated text. But it's just not something that our eyes pick up well. In a big data file, it's very hard to scan a vector of 1,500 numbers and find strings of 15 or 20 values that are duplicated. Do you think that kind of computer analysis of data files is going to become co common? I don't. I don't because this is such a unique case. And, you know, honestly, if somebody wanted to make up data or um, take a data set of 100 observations and turn it into 200 observations, um, if somebody were inclined to cheat, as soon as you create a computer software that scans for a particular flavor of cheating, all they need to do is duplicate those numbers and then sort them. Right. You know, che randomize the order. Some new way, huh? So I, you know, I... Right. I'm not aware of any other instance yeah. where somebody has done what happened here. Mm -hmm. And I want to be very clear that I do not know mm -hmm. that this was done intentionally. Right? Um, it's a repeated mm -hmm. pattern. It shows up in many data sets. Um, I can speculate, but I would rather not speculate about exactly how these came to be. Um, but... Setting aside the notion of intentionality, yeah. I'm not aware of any instance like this. And so, yeah, people can use this new repeat finder code 
and scan their collaborators' data sets. Um, I suspect this is going to be a one-off case, and I somebody else who decides to uh, do something with their data is going to do it a different way. Right. So, Dan, can you? I mean, the I know you don't want to get into intentionality. It's nothing we should we should really be talking about. But was the now that it's clear, now that there's a computer program that can search for what happens, is it a fairly straightforward thing, how it likely came to be and the way that it was that the mechanics of generating the duplication would have been the same thing no. in all of the different data sets? I, like if you, I, if you could sort of walk us through how you think it, it came I, to I literally don't have an idea how this could happen accidentally. Okay. Having, having looked at large Excel okay. files with duplicated blocks of numbers highlighted by and color-coded, I don't know how that would come to be. Um, I will add that there okay. are... Okay. This is not the only uh, potential flaw in these data sets. So there are data sets where the public data repository is an Excel file, and you can enter functions into Excel to calculate numbers. And there are some cases where a column of supposedly independently measured data, when you actually click on the cell, turns out to be a function where those numbers are calculated as a function of other things in the file. Hmm. Um, in some cases, for example, the weight gain of a spider is calculated as a function of the behavioral score of that spider. Mm. Um, when the method section of the paper says that the reverse is true. Um, and Pruitt's explanation is that he no longer has the raw data sheets to calculate the, the mass change, and so he back-calculated for this public spreadsheet. I can't confirm or deny that. Um, but that's not the only instance where... Mm -hmm. Functions are found in Excel files that are calculating numbers in ways that don't make sense based on the described methods. Cal calculating numbers that should have been collected as part of the raw data exactly. and, and therefore are not generated by functions in the first place. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so I've, I've repeatedly pressed Jonathan to bring forward uh, paper data sheets. Um, or bring forward undergraduates who have come in, who have helped with these yeah, I I haven't received, a, and those have not been forthcoming. Those have not been forthcoming, which isn't to say that they won't be. So, have you had? Um, it sounds like you've been having back and forth with Jonathan, but have you? Has he said? You know, as things have progressed, has he given more uh, you know, feedback and yeah, more input to um, how things happened? So, I co-run a blog with Andrew Hendry, and Andrew and I offered to Jonathan the opportunity to make a public statement, whatever he wishes to say, using that blog as a platform. Um, and he indicated that he was interested in doing so, and then uh, on someone else's advice, we pointed out to him that he probably should refer to a lawyer first, um, as much as I'd like for the community's sake to have clarity on this quickly uh, for his own sake. I think he, he needed to, to be cautious there. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'd say, you know, some of my conversations with him have had to do with how these data were generated. Um, and I'm not always satisfied by the answers that I've gotten, but I can't 
confirm or deny how he measured the weights of crickets in the field, um, even though the numbers seem strangely precise. Sure. Um, and and then some of the conversations have been about his well-being because he's under an incredible amount of strain, and you know, regardless of whether or not he uh, did this accidentally or did this intentionally, um, nobody wants him to be a risk to himself. And so some of it's just checking up on him to make sure that he's okay and he has mm-hmm. people with mm-hmm. him and so on, which he does. Hmm. Do you know? So he's currently at McMaster University. Have do you know? Are you aware of anything that McMaster is doing uh, about this process? I mean, what what is the role of universities in scenarios yeah. like this? So it it is not in general the role of a journal to uh, adjudicate a broader question about an author's uh, actions. Um, my role as editor is specifically to, with regards to the papers that are published in the journal that I edit. Um, but my role is also to notify institutions when there's a retraction and when there are uh, unexplained patterns in data. And so I contacted uh, McMaster University, um, the academic integrity officer and his department chair prior to the retraction, the very first retraction becoming public. And I contacted his former institutions as well. And all I can say is that uh, McMaster University is in the process of evaluating um, these concerns and they are in communication with other universities. And that's that's the full extent mm-hmm. of what I should mm-hmm. say there. Let, let's turn also and just, just consider for a moment, what, what do you think are the broader implications of this for the the field of behavioral ecology and and maybe just sort of bi- biology more generally what what are the long-term consequences i think the the actions he's he's a very prolific and influential uh, author and thinker and the the shakeup that's following is going to definitely lead to a lot of questions and a certain amount of rethinking in behavioral ecology. But I think ultimately the resulting soul searching and introspection and reevaluation is probably going to strengthen the field. Um, It may very well improve rigor. Um, So for example, there have been cases in the past in behavioral ecology related to videotaping and, um, observer bias, to what extent is the observer aware of the treatment that the organisms are getting, or is it a double-blind scoring of behaviors? Um, And so those past problems led to more rigorous standards about video documentation and double-blind scoring of behaviors. Um, And I think this will do something much the same. Um, So in the long run, I think that there will be a lot of lessons learned. I think there as far as I can tell, every university in the country that has an animal behavior or ecology and evolution department is having conversations and seminars and student discussion groups about what this means more broadly for how we do science and how we handle data. And I think that's a very healthy thing. Right. One thing that's um, rubbed me raw from, from Twitter and other social media, but then, then again, what does it, um, is this sort of disparaging that's happening about animal personality research in general. Um, I don't know if, if you really want to speak to that, but, you know, personally, it doesn't really make sense that one person's contributions means an entire subfield falls apart. So, no, yeah, I agree. There, there are lots of other people working on that. 
I'll hold off on commenting specifically whether I like or dislike the word personality and animal behavior. <laughs> yeah. um, sure, that's for the pages of American Natural. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think as, as one of my associate editors in the journal said, that ship has sailed. You're not, you're not <laughs> to mix metaphors, you're not putting that genie back in the bottle So uh, for that particular word. But yeah, there's lots of other very rigorous research that's out there. And whatever word we apply to the notion that there are individual differences in populations for behavioral traits. Um, it's clear that that's true. It's clear that that has large impacts. Um, I think, I hope that the community as a whole sees this shakeup as an opportunity for some recalibration. And I know that there are plans afoot for a lot of the affected people who have been involved with Pruitt um, to get together and try and get a conference together and plan out, okay, what do we do next? You know, what experiments do we need to redo or what new directions do we take this based on this outcome? And so I think this could be a catalyst for some very, very interesting uh, synthesis and new experimental ideas going forward. Mm -hmm. Great. Let me, let me ask one last question, uh, and that is, uh, do you have any advice for, you know, working biologists or, or students or, you know, anybody who sees something like this happening? What, what, what should they do? If somebody has suspicion that there are significant flaws in a data set, they should bring that to the attention of the editor. Um, they can do so anonymously. Um, the procedures differ a little bit. For example, if you're a co-author, it's a little bit of a different status than if you're uh, some other critic of the work. Um, typically, if you're not involved in the actual paper, then the expectation is that you would submit a critique, a written paper, saying, here's why I'm concerned about these analyses or these data. Um, and that would be reviewed, and the journal might go back and re-review the original paper or look at the data for the original paper. So on my end, the very first thing I did was to send the data set for this American Naturalist paper off to a couple of people and say, could you please take a look at this? Uh, here are the concerns. Do you agree that they're valid? So that uh, independent assessment is crucial. Um, it is true that journals are not always open to uh, evaluating this because it does raise a host of questions, um, including uh, legal liabilities, etc. Um, there are people who have contacted me regarding Pruitt who have concerns about their identity being revealed during the process and so they want to stay behind the scenes. Um, so it really comes down to trying to communicate concerns thoroughly. And this is a big can of worms to open on somebody. So if you, if you have concerns about a data set, uh, you really need to know that you're in the right because making accusations like this without a very clear uh, ground to stand on uh, is, is going to be very damaging to somebody else. I mean, Pruitt has had a very, very bad couple of months. Um, and nobody wants to impose that on somebody else arbitrarily or, or incorrectly. And so doing this very cautiously and very intentionally is, is essential and having good documentation of what your concerns are. 
Okay, so one last question for me too, Dan, but that's really more just to give you an opportunity for anything that we didn't ask you, anything else that you'd like to say. Ultimately, I feel like this is a, a, a tragedy for everybody concerned. Um, and I think the key is looking forward to how we can move past this, how we can prevent this kind of thing from happening again to the best of our ability, but most importantly, trying to help out the uh, co-authors and collaborators who've been affected by this and reevaluate what this means for the discipline. And in particular, think about what this means for how we go about doing science. And those conversations are happening a lot. And I think that's a, a good thing. I think the community is doing an extraordinarily good job of coming together to evaluate. And, you know, there were certainly concerns about an element of, of mob justice, especially once all of this hit blogs and Twitter and so on. Um, by and large, yeah, people, especially once the second retraction became public, people understandably be, started to get a little agitated about this and, and really concerned and leap to conclusions. Um, but by and large, the conversation has been very careful and respectful, which has been great. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much for, uh, you know, playing the leading role that you played in sort of getting, getting to the bottom of this and helping out the co-authors and, you know, think, thinking about these sort of conceptual issues. Thanks. It's funny because I think it's simply the accident that uh, the American Naturalist happened to be the first journal to get yeah. contacted and the first to process the retraction. <laughs> right, suddenly you're uh, it. Huh? Lucky dropped you. me into a role that that wasn't wasn't my choice. But yeah. uh, and I, I should say, for full disclosure, uh, Jonathan has been a friend of mine for a number of years, and uh, I've co-authored a paper with him. And so, you know, it was it was quite a, a surprise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, full disclosure, I, I've also published with Jonathan and uh, yeah, this is interesting. But but Dan, I do want to say too that, um, you know, on behalf of the field of biology, the responsibility that you have taken on, I can't imagine that you signed on to do this when you accepted the editorship. <laughs> um, and the, the tact that you've had and the level-headedness for everything um, and the energy, I mean, it's, it's just fantastic. So really, it, that's, that's a fantastic thing yeah, for you to thanks. have done. out to Jonathan Pruitt to talk about the issues with his data, he said he can't comment right now. We also want to point you towards some of the great essays and blog posts that scientists like Kate Laskowski, Jeremy Fox, and Terry McGlynn, among others, have written about this topic. We'll put links to those resources on our website, bigbiology.org. Thanks to Matt Boyce for producing this episode. Mike Levine runs our social media channels and creates content for the Patreon page. Dana Baxter helps with background research. And as always, Steve Lane manages our website. Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on this episode is from Pottington Bear. 